All right, so we're going through church history still. Um, some people have been away. We've been through uh, Ignatius. Most recently we did Ignatius. I think you probably were here for that. Uh, Apostolic Father. We also talked about the Apostolic Father Polycarp and some other persecutions. Let's start out this morning with a quote. Uh, the second century Christian philosopher named Justin Martyr wrote this in his address to the Roman Empire. He said this, quote, When you hear that we look for a kingdom, you suppose, without making any inquiry, that we speak of a human kingdom, whereas we speak of that which is with God. For if we looked for a human kingdom, we should also deny our Christ, that we might not be slain. And we should strive to escape detection that we might obtain what we expect. But since our thoughts are not fixed on the present, we are not concerned when men cut us off, since death is a debt which must all, at all events be paid. So this lesson today that we're starting right now, it's the second lesson in our, or the second part of our lesson that I've titled Strangers and Exiles. It's about persecution specifically uh, in the second century. And uh, last week, we, as I mentioned, we revisited our timeline of the emperors uh, from the second century. Uh, there was Trajan, who was the first um, second century emperor, started his reign at the beginning of the first century. After Trajan, there was Hadrian. After Hadrian, Antoninus Pius. And after him, there was Marcus Aurelius. And that's about as far as we got So uh, into the second century. Remember, of course, that Ignatian, Eric Ignatius that we talked about. Uh, was executed under Trajan at the beginning of the second century. Last week we got into uh, talking about Polycarp, another apostolic father, in fact, to our knowledge, probably the last one, uh, who was also executed. He was executed either in the reign of Antoninus Pius or Marcus Aurelius. Eusebius prefers Marcus Aurelius because he was uh, killed during that time. And last week we also learned about the persecution in Gaul or modern-day France, which um, occurred during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. So during the second century, um, you've got these persecutions going on. And these persecutions that we talked about specific, the specific ones, I submitted to you as kind of representative. They, they are not like it, this was happening everywhere necessarily, but they are representative of the kinds of hostility uh, that was occurring throughout the Roman Empire at different times and places. It, it's kind of representative of what frequently occurred during this era of the church. And it's representative of how awful things potentially did get for Christians at times. We also discussed last week how uh, Christians in the second century understood far better than their Roman rulers, and perhaps a little better than we do today, that Christians are merely strangers and exiles in this world. Now we're supposed to live conscious of that reality. Uh, that's, not, that's, like, that's something we should live with in our hearts and in our minds every day. This um, Bible Equipping Hour series, if you'll remember, uh, on church, this, this one on specifically on church history, when we started out, we started out by arguing that the church is uh, relevant in history. In fact, it's the only human institution that is truly relevant in history. And I think that relevance the relevance of the church comes out in bold relief uh, during times of church persecution. Uh, Christians know that whether we live or whether we die, we belong to an eternal and visible kingdom uh, that doesn't belong to this world. 
But the world, meanwhile, clings to kingdoms, nations, and empires that are passing away and will ultimately be irrelevant. The quote that I just gave you from Justin Martyr, I think captures a lot of that contrast, uh, the contrast of what the church is living for as well, the contrast of between what Christians believe and the misunderstanding of uh, the world and worldly rulers. Uh, the fact is that the emperor and probably a lot of other unbelieving Romans during the second century, what, what they would do is they would encounter little tidbits of Christian doctrine here and there. And those tidbits would be incomplete. They would be sometimes without context. And naturally, the emperor and the others would kind of misconstrue what it meant. And that misunderstanding further fueled the prejudice of the people and the emperor towards Christians. But the faithfulness, the patience, the humility that, that Christians had in the face of this hostility, in all of that, I think we see a key uh, part of what should be the holy response of the church whenever the church faces hostility. It's a response where, one, we know that we're strangers and exiles anyway. We know that we have heaven awaiting us. And so we can remain confident. We can remain loyal to Christ, uh, even if we're facing mistreatment and death. And we can also be humble and forgiving, knowing that we're not really any different from our oppressors. We're not really any different from the people who are persecuting us, except for one thing, and that is we've been forgiven. We've got the grace of God and He's given, given to us. There's another part of the church's holy response to persecution that I think is really important, and that's what I want to deal with today in this part. Um, the relevance of the church as strangers and exiles who are uh, we belong to an eternal kingdom. I think it's also shown when in the face of persecution, we don't just suffer patiently, but we also give a godly defense of our faith. We give a godly argument for what we believe and why we believe it. And I think that this is really well exemplified in the, se in the second century when we encounter a group of guys who are called the second century church apologists. So I'm sure you're all familiar with the idea of apologetics. You've heard the word uh, uh, Christian apologetics before the term. Um, and you're all familiar with this idea of responding to those who challenge what we believe. In fact, I know that some of you here probably had apologetics classes. Some of you are probably really good um, uh, at debating and using reason to sort of persuade others. And also to respond to what are sometimes militant or even yeah, downright hostile claims and accusations from people who hate the gospel. And so many of you are, are very well acquainted with that. Well, good news is... We're carrying on, if you're doing that, if we're doing that, you're actually carrying on a 2,000-year-old church tradition. The church has always done that. The apostles did that. Uh, and in the second century, there's a group of guys who kind of came out and emerged at that time, a handful of men who were kind of unique in, in a sense. They left a unique legacy, uh, as specifically as apologists. They weren't church leaders or elders. They weren't preachers. They weren't really remembered necessarily. Most of them weren't remembered for being theologians or great doctrinal students. Um, they uh, really, beyond the simple fact that they were known as faithful Christians, they were remembered mostly for being apologists. So they're this, they're this group of guys in the second century who began to emerge in this context where the church is being persecuted officially as well as unofficially. 
These guys were a bunch of guys who began to get a reasoned public response to the unreasonable public injustice that was being committed against the church. So today I want to introduce you to a few of these guys. One of the earliest of those guys, his name was Quadratus. Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-U-S, Quadratus. We don't know a whole lot about him, uh, but we know about him from our church's historian Eusebius. Eusebius uh, preserved, he preserves a small excerpt of Quadratus' letter. Um, Quadratus came about uh, he, somewhere in the early part of the second century under Hadrian's reign. He wrote a letter and addressed it to the emperor Hadrian because of some of the persecution that was going on at that time. So Eusebius uh, preserved part of that letter, and in Eusebius' history we have uh, an excerpt from that. During the same emperor's reign, so also during Hadrian's reign, um, there was another guy named Arist Aristides, or Aristides, a Greek Christian philosopher. He also wrote a brief discourse and likewise addressed it to Hadrian. His letter actually is still, um, we still have it today, uh, pretty much more or less in complete form, and it's what it is, is a doc it's a document that explains Christian doctrine. It begins at the creation, uh, goes on to explain the errors of, of the pagan belief systems, and then uh, you know makes it an invitation to uh, a response. After Aristides comes perhaps the best remembered, the most famous apologist, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, as I mentioned, he was not a clergyman, he was not a preacher, not a student of theology. He was just a, he considered himself a Christian philosopher. So he had uh, studied Socrates and Plato. He knew, he read the uh, classical Greek literature. He, he wore, philo philo there was philosopher's clothing. Um, just like today we might have, um, you know, politician's clothing or preacher's clothing. Back then there was a philosopher's garb. He wore the philosopher's garb. That was his professional identity, I guess you could say. And um, he, uh, I think Justin really reminds me a lot of C.S. Lewis in a lot of ways. He uh, was, um, yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, he was a guy who um, really was well acquainted, well educated and versed in worldly wisdom and literature. But as a Christian, he used those things as tools to engage the unbelieving world, to kind of engage them in a debate and a conversation. And he used it, I think, rather effectively. Uh, Justin, in fact, he argued this uh, position. He believed that the Christian faith was the true philosophy. Um, as a philosopher, he felt the one truth of philosophy. He had looked at Socrates, he had looked at Plato, he looked at the other guys. He, had, he was an expert on philosophy, and at the end of the day, he said, Christianity, the Christian faith, is the true philosophy. Justin Martyr's most, uh, probably three most influential works would include two apologies that he wrote. Um, he addressed his first apology uh, publicly to Antoninus Pius and to that emperor's adopted son, Marcus Aurelius. And then another work that he wrote was called Dialogue with Trifra, which is a, um, it's a sort of like a literary work that just recounts a discussion that Justin had with a certain young Jew that he met. Um, as Justin's surname betrays, he was eventually executed himself. He was a martyr, uh, along with a group of other people. He was um, condemned to the head. After Justin, there was a bunch of others. There was Tatian. Tatian was actually a pupil of Justin's. 
Um, Nasturtation, you had Miletus of Sardis, Athenagoras of Athens, Theophilus of Antioch, and, and a bunch of others. Uh, later on, we're still going to meet some real, a couple really important guys. One of them is named Tertullian at the end of this century, the second century, and then the other guy is named Origen. Both of those guys were apologists in their own right. They wrote some really um, key, really important, and really influential apologies that we still have today. Uh, although those two guys actually are also theologians. They're remembered for their theological contribution to the church. Okay, any questions up to this point? I had a question. Yeah. So like Justin, I know you said he scored like C.S. Lewis, but I don't know. C.S. wasn't really like informed or anything. Um, so would you say like would was Justin and like the people in the early sort of centuries that were more reformed but still engaged in like the worldly like literature with and that's what by reformed you mean like Calvinistic Calvinist. or okay yeah. yeah well that that of course comes after Calvin the idea of being reformed specifically um, doctrinally uh, we're going to get into some theology I think with more with other people than necessarily with the apologists. But doctrinally, people, there's a lot of different things in, in the patristic era. Um, I would argue that really all the arguments that we have today, theologically within the church, um, whether it's Calvin, whether it's Luther, or whether it's even Reformed versus Catholic, pretty much most all, all of those arguments occurred in some way in some form in the patristic era. So we'll definitely want to deal with those. Um, as far as the apologists go, when you read the apologists, you'll find that their doctrine, their theology, to the ex extent that they get into that, um, does kind of also go different ways to some extent. The key things are they, they all, of course, have a, a faith in Christ, um, a faith in the one true God and the Father uh, and his Son, Jesus Christ. They're all Trinitarian so far as, as I can tell. They believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, they're very clearly people who have rejected, have come out of the pagan um, culture of that time and have rejected it and have remained you know, truly faithful to the Christian faith. But theologically, yeah, you're going to get some different positions from different apologists. Because so, it was times debated then as well within the church. So, but yeah, that's a good question. Was that what you were asking? Yeah. More or less? Any other questions? Those Christian philosophy, I mean, I'm assuming it's still existed here, Christian philosophy. Christian philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I say that C.S. Lewis was, I kind of, um, that, that Justin Martin kind of reminds me a bit of C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis was also, well, he was a literist, but he was, or a literary artist, I should say. He was also a philosopher in some sense. He, he was acquainted with philosophy. And yes, there's Christian philosophy today, to be sure. <coughs> I guess the Christian philosopher experts would be able to delineate the line between like secular philosophy and like actual Christian yeah. philosophy. Absolutely, yeah. Um, give you a, maybe an ex example today of someone who gets into philosophy a lot. Um, might You might not think of him as a philosopher. He probably wouldn't really be a philosopher per se, but he is very philosophical and, and uses philosophy. That'd be John Piper. John Piper, in fact, I remember, I can't remember what book it was, but somewhere he made an argument for the use of philosophy, obviously in submission to scripture, but um, yeah, 
Yeah, his philosophy is not secular philosophy. So there's all sorts of things. Justin Martyr was a little weird, though, I will confess, that when it came to philosophy. He, he actually makes an argument that sounds like he's saying that Socrates was akin to an Old Testament saint. And I don't know all the, you can kind of, I kind of follow his argument that Socrates, he believes Socrates knew the one true God, and of course Jesus hadn't arrived on the scene yet. Um, I don't know if I would agree with him on that, but um, uh, you can kind of see maybe where he's going with it. And by the way, that's also similar to C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis also was a bit of an inclusivist, uh, which is this idea that some people who haven't heard Christ yet, but know the true God, might still be saved. That's kind of like what I notice, like with most, like people who are philosophers, like we get really deep, like sort of like what's his name, William Lane Craig as well. He sort of like kind of he's like a modernist, but he sort of yeah. is, like what you're saying. They didn't hear it, so some some people who are philosophers kind of go that way. Sure. Okay, uh, let's move on. What did we What did we learn from these guys? Um, Apart from their theology and so forth, what are, what are some key things that I think that we could take away from this as a church? Um, what does their legacy as apologists teach us should be the church's response? Well, we know that the church should be um, patient. We know that the church should be uh, meek and humble. We know that the church should be faithful to Christ in persecution. We know all these things, but I think there are at least a handful of other things that the apologists of the second century to teach us as well. Let me give you just four today. Um, first one is, one, it's okay to, for the church, it is okay to appeal for justice. It's okay to appeal for justice. At the beginning of his first apology, Justin Martyr says, quote, we demand that the charges against Christians be investigated. What he's talking about is this fact that there's all these accusations that are being raised against Christians, but Justin's saying no one's really investigating these accusations. They're just being raised, and then Christians are being, you know, executed. We demand that these accusations actually be investigated to see if they're true or not. He's appealing for justice. Also, there's Athena Goris. Athena Goris writes this, he says, although we commit no wrong, you allow us, he's writing to the emperor, he's, he's publicly addressed this to the emperor, although we commit no wrong, Christians, that is, you allow us to be harassed, plundered, and persecuted. The multitude makes war upon us for our name alone. We venture, therefore, to lay a statement of our case before you, and you will learn from this discourse that we suffer unjustly and contrary to all law and reason. That's the first thing that the apologists did, is they made an appeal for justice. As Christians, we don't delight in suffering unjustly. It's not like something we take pleasure in. Yes, we do want to count a joy when we uh, suffer for per persecution, but it's not because the persecution is itself pleasurable to us. That's not what's going on. The joy that we have when we are called to be uh, persecuted is because of what the persecution signifies. One, it signifies that God is kind of worthy to suffer for his name. And two, it also signifies that we have a great reward in heaven to look forward to. So there's a reason to have joy for that. But once we've encountered persecution, 
there is a godly and an acceptable way to seek relief from it. Uh, there is a right way to go about addressing it and uh, trying to get out of it in a good way. If God wills that we undergo persecution and he doesn't provide a way out for that for us, then we want to submit ourselves to his will, to his leading. Uh, but it is okay, even right, I think, for us to see if God's way either through or out of that persecution could be by the decisions of just rulers. The apostles, if you read the scripture, the apostles themselves appealed to the justice of worldly authorities, and I believe the church has always done through, so throughout history and should continue to follow their example. So one, it's okay to appeal for justice from unbelieving, otherwise ungodly uh, authorities to rule over us. The second thing that I think uh, the example of the apologist teaches us is we should, refer, uh, sorry, we should affirm our respect and obedience to worldly rulers. It's important for the church to make sure that worldly rulers aren't punishing us because, simply because they are misinformed of what we're about. Um, as you saw, Justin explained to the Roman emperor, we're not, you know, we say we're living for a kingdom, but it's not like we're trying to overthrow your kingdom here and now. That's not what it's about. Let me read you a couple other things uh, from Justin Martyr real quick. Find him. Justin Martyr says this to um, in his first apology. He says, And more than all other men are we your helpers and allies in promoting peace. Seeing that we hold this view, that it is alike impossible for the wicked, the covetous, the conspirator, and for the virtuous to escape the notice of God. So he's telling the emperor of that one, he says, we're, we're about peace. We're about obedience to uh, your government, your rulership. Then in a second, in another part of that same apology, Justin quotes Christ's words about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering to God what is God's. And then he's, Justin goes on to say, he says, therefore, to God alone we render worship. So he's setting it very clear. Hey, there's a line for us. We only worship God. We don't worship you, the emperor. We don't worship your false gods. Therefore, to God alone we render worship, but in other things we gladly serve you, the emperor. So you see what he's doing? He's telling the emperor, hey, emperor, you know, we're on your side. We're your best citizens. We should Christians should actually be among the best citizens. As much as our culture glorifies it at, at times, I know I personally tend to kind of gravitate toward this a little bit. The fact is, Christians are not called to rebellion or revolution. That's not what we're doing. Um, we're not called to be rebels against worldly government. Instead, we're commanded to seek peace and to submit to rules. If the church is being persecuted because uh, worldly rulers think Christians are revolutionaries, then the church does have the responsibility to set the record straight and to inform those rulers of what is actually true and that we actually are commanded by God to submit to them. If at all that, if that's at all possible. Okay, the third thing. The third thing that I think the apologists teach us is it is necessary at the same time uh, while we submit to rulers it is also necessary to confront and reprove evil doing evil doing injustice oppression exploitation 
These are sins that the church is called to confront and rebuke, and that includes when the church is itself the main victim. Um, we mentioned before that sometimes there are these rumors and, and misunderstandings about Christianity, and in fact, occasionally that's really what's driving the persecution, but very often those rumors and misunderstandings are kind of uh, just um, excuses. They're, they're, they're excuses that people employ to justify how they mistreat Christians. That does happen at some times. Uh, very often the real reason that they hate us may be something that they're unwilling to admit. Again, I really love the way that Justin uh, uses logic to expose this reality. Back to his apology, he says, by the, quote, by the mere application of a name, nothing is decided, either good or evil. He's talking about the name Christian. By the mere application of a name, nothing is decided, either good or evil. You do not punish those among yourselves who are accused before they are convicted. But in our case, you receive the name Christian as proof against us. So Justin, in, in these words, he's confronting this obvious double standard that the government has. If, if another ordinary citizen is accused of wrongdoing, they actually investigate it. They actually call witnesses and figure out if it really happened. Um, but if someone's accused of being Christian, they don't do that. They say, oh, you're Christian. You're guilty. And Justin goes on. He says, again, if any of the accused deny the name and say he is not a Christian, you acquit him as having no evidence against him as a wrongdoer. So it's all about the name. It's not really even about what Christians are doing or not doing. What Justin is doing here is he's calling the Roman justice system's bluff. He's saying, you know, if Christians are really guilty of doing all the nefarious things that people say they're doing, um, then how could one suddenly become an innocent simply by renouncing the name Christian? How does that suddenly make him innocent of all those you know, evil deeds that you guys have talked about before? He's calling the justice system's bluff. It's not really about those evil deeds. It's about something else. Later on, Justin, in the same apology, goes on to point out how Christians are punished for being so-called atheists. There's this other double standard, too. But at the same time, the Roman government confronts honors and awards on pagan philosophers who, uh, and poets who would openly insult and mock the gods. So there is a very clear double standard. What he's doing is he's calling out, he's rebuking the injustice of his time um, in a bold, respectful, but bold way in his, in his letters to the Emperor. Number four, the fourth thing that I think uh, the apologist can teach us is that persecution is an opportunity to preach the gospel. Most of the apologists of the second century uh, actually spend more time in their written apologies, persuading their readers to embrace Christ than they do appealing for justice and relief from persecution. Uh, in fact, for some apologists, it's almost as if appealing for justice, affirming respect and obedience to rulers and approving evil almost serve merely as segues into a presentation of the gospel, um, an invitation to repent and follow Christ. Aristides, who we mentioned, Remember how he wrote a letter to uh, and addressed it to Hadrian? He hardly spends any time at all talking about the plight of Christians. His entire letter is really just an evangelistic, uh, overtly evangelistic um, uh, invitation. He starts with an argument for the one true almighty creator. He then goes on and he picks apart the 
uh, ignorant beliefs of the Chaldeans, then the Egyptians, then the Greeks, and then finally the Jews, respectively. And then at the end, he summarizes uh, by demonstrating how the Creator God is revealed perfectly in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to how Aristides closes his letter. He says, uh, to the emperor and to all his readers, he says, Therefore, let your foolish sages cease their idle talk against the Lord, that's Jesus. For it is profitable for you to worship God, the Creator, and to give ear to his incorruptible words, that you may escape from condemnation and punishment, and that you may be found to be heirs of the life everlasting. It's an evangelistic letter in the end, more than it is even apologetic. God has left us as strangers and exiles in this world for a reason. Persecution, if and when we encounter it, is actually one of the best opportunities to, uh, to evangelize, to show our citizenship of an eternal kingdom, and more so than that, just to also call others to join us in the same faith. Uh, so whether our appeals for justice and relief are, are uh, heated or unheeded, uh, the church's higher concern really is in the end to call sinners to repentance and to salvation. Let's just close by turning back to Hebrews. Uh, we, turned, we looked at Hebrews last week. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. What it means to be strangers and pilgrims for the church is this reality that, that we recognize where we lose, in some sense we lose an identity. We lose our identity with the nations of this world. This passage in Hebrews is actually written to Jewish believers of that time. Jewish people were, of course, God's, you know, they're part of Israel, God's chosen people. And even to them, the writer says, you're going to lose your identity. You're going with Christ outside the camp. You don't have a lasting city here, an enduring city. If that's true for Jewish believers, how much more is that going to be true for those of us who believe today and belong to Gentile nations? There's a loss of identity. But there's also a gaining of a, of a much better, much more relevant identity. And at the same time, while we gain that identity, we also gain a commission. In, in going with Christ outside of camp and joining with him and participating with him in suffering, we also uh, join with him in calling other people to forsake the world and to embrace the kingdom and to believe the gospel. That's what it means to be strangers and folks.